Lord, as we look in your word this morning, I pray that uh, the truth out of one more section of your word would be real to us and helpful and challenging, that it would accomplish all your good purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing majoring in the minors this morning. We're in the book of Micah. Many years ago, when I was a young Christian, I, I was in a Bible study that did a study, par, our Bible study portion of the time together was Micah. <clears throat> and I'd always had fond memories of the book of Micah because of that. And I've read Micah many times since. But I confess, in preparing to teach it this morning, uh, reading through Micah, I was reminded why people don't read the minor prophets and the major prophets and Leviticus and parts of Deuteronomy too. In the sense that, you know, it's not like Jonah where you've got this great story that you read the story and the story carries you along. But Micah's one of those books where it doesn't, in fact, it doesn't even follow neatly an outline. And so when you go through a book of Micah, I think it can be intimidating or boring. But this is my advice, and this is the advice I'm following this morning. If you go through a book like Micah or another minor prophet or any other part of the scripture, and you think there's so much that you don't understand, don't worry about what you don't understand, but plod through and then pick up the gems that you see along the way. Does that make sense? You can use helps, you can read commentaries, you can get all kinds of Bible atlases, etc. So you can get help to understand. But if you're just reading through your Bible and you're in a book that just doesn't seem very valuable or doesn't seem to make a lot of sense or you're just not getting what's being said... I just advise you to plow through anyway, keep reading, don't don't give up, and don't worry about what you don't understand or the pieces you can't put together. But when you go through at that time, just pick up the gems off the ground that you can. Take what what does make sense, take what you can understand, and go with that. The next time through, it'll be a little different. Years ago, our family took a trip, a vacation for a month, and we went up through the Northwest. And one of the places we really wanted to see was called Agate Beach in Northern California. And as you go along Agate Beach, there's these cool rocks everywhere. And really, the problem is, what do you pick up and what do you leave? You know, so if you come to our hall bathroom and you see a glass bowl full of agates, those are from Agate Beach in Northern California, And, you know, as you go along Agate Beach, you're kind of taking your pick about what you pick up and what you leave behind. And so when you read a book like Micah, just figure you're walking across Agate Beach and you're going to pick up what looks like a gem and you'll come back later and get the rest. You don't have to get it all in one sitting. When we pick up in Micah today, we're going to pick up and it'll actually be piecemeal. We'll go through, kind of we'll start at the beginning and go to the end sort of three times to pick up three key themes, God's judgment. You know, if you're reading a prophet, almost always, there's a judgment element, and that's certainly true of Micah. The reasons for the judgment, very specific in this book. But then also, and this will sound depressing when we go through these first two times, these first two themes, but it ends with this note of hope, this gem of hope, if you will, about God's redeeming a remnant in Israel. Micah's name is like my name, Micah, Michael, and it means who is like God, who is like the Lord. Great name. And Micah, like actually most of the minor prophets we've read so far, Micah's in that same time period in the 700 B.C. period, the same time that Isaiah and Amos and Hosea were, 
And we've talked about this time where uh, very economically prosperous times, especially for Israel in the north, times were good. The stock market was high. Everybody was making money. It was a good, prosperous time. Spiritually, quite another story. Quite another story. But we're in the same, same ballpark. And in fact, Micah was a contemporary with Isaiah so that if you read Micah 4 and it sounds familiar, it's because it's almost verbatim with Isaiah 2. So similar prophets, similar time, in part similar themes. It's not known if Micah borrowed from Isaiah or Isaiah borrowed from Micah or they were both sharing a common theme from another source, but they were contemporaries. And you'll see as we start going through on the judgments, Micah addresses most of his... Uh, prophecies, most of what he has to say, it goes, it says to Samaria and to Jerusalem, though you'll see in the end most of the time or the attention is focused on Jerusalem, but he's addressing the capitals of the northern and southern nations. And so we're going to go through Micah three times, sort of. We'll skip through verses. That's the only place we'll be this morning, starting with God's judgments. Micah 1 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, and Moresheth is a town near Gath, the Philistine area. Micah lived kind of on the edge of Israel. During the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, he lived through three administrations. And those are, of course, uh, kings in the south, not in Israel. The vision he saw concerning Samaria, the capital of Israel in the north, and Jerusalem, capital of Judah in the south, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. You know you're in trouble, Zach, when the first thing God says is he's witnessing against you. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place, that is, descending from heaven. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Verse 6, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. When God starts talking about the judgments that are coming, he starts with Samaria and he says the capital of the nation. Remember, this would be like saying New York City for us today or Washington, D.C., will be a heap of rubble. It'll be a place that doesn't even resemble a city. It's a place you'd plant things. It won't even look like a city had ever existed there. Samaria, the capital of the prosperous, rich nation of Israel, it's going to be a heap of rubble when God's done with it. That's part of His judgment. Verse 16, Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. You remember in the Middle East, even still today, physically taking on symbols of sorrow or sadness. God says it's going to be a day to shave your head. Why? Well, because the children that you delight in, they're going to be taken as exiles into foreign countries. The children that you would have hopes of for a prosperous future, those children, they're not going to live in this land. They're going to be the refugees of war and they're going to be taken out. They're going to be exiles in other nations. Micah 2 verse 3, skipping ahead. The Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. 
In that day men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. This is what Israel would say. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me, God. He assigns our fields to traders. God says as part of his judgment that Israel and Judah would be the butt of the jokes of the nations around them. The nations around them would look down their nose at that lowly nation, that people group of Israel and Judah. They would be the butt of jokes and their land would be given away to others. In chapter 3, starting at verse 6, God talks about a a judgment on the prophets. Here he's talked about Samaria and Israel. He's talked about the children. Here he turns specifically to judgment against the prophets. Micah 3.6, he says, Night will come over you without visions, darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, the diviners disgraced. They will cover their faces because there is no answer from God. Now remember, the prophets are basically the group God speaks to the nation through. So God says, among the things I'm going to do specifically to judge you is, the people that speak to you for me are going to have absolutely nothing to say. I'm not going to talk to the prophets, and you're not going to hear anything from me. You guys know when the storm comes in, you hear the thunder and lightning maybe, and then it gets quiet all of a sudden, and it kind of makes you wait for that next thunder crash. You know the storm's on you. When God quits speaking to the prophets, this is not a good thing. And he says he compares it to day and night. When God's speaking, the prophets have light. There's revelation. We know what God's doing. We know what's going on. But God says part of his judgment is he quits speaking to the prophets. And the prophets don't know what God's doing. He's not talking to them anymore. And the nation, therefore, lacks the light of God's revelation because God has quit speaking. It's as if his next statement will be the thunderclap of judgment. The warnings are over. God has quit talking. Judgment is coming. In Micah 3, verse 12, God moves to Jerusalem and Judah in the south. And he says there... Zion, or Jerusalem, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem, like Samaria, will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill will become a mound overgrown with thickets. Same thought. What once was a city, what once was this incredible temple mount complex, now it will be just a, a heap of stones when God's done with it in His judgment. Going to Micah six thirteen. God says, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. And remember, he's speaking to people with everything in the world to eat, prosperous people in prosperous times. You'll eat but you won't be satisfied. Your stomach will be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save, I will give to the sword." You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. Therefore I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. God says to a people lost in their own prosperity, you're going to have all this prosperity and it will be meaningless. If you remember in Haggai's day, totally different time when they're rebuilding the temple much later after this, God says for you, it's like 
you put money in a sack that has a hole in it. So you're taking your savings and you think you've, you've set them aside, but it's as if the pouch, the money bag has a hole in it. Nothing's left. That's what God says he's going to do here. He's going to bring frustration to them. This people that delights in their prosperity, they're still going to have all this stuff, but it won't be satisfying. And it'll be as if they're eating, but they just can't get full. Or they're spending, but they just can't spend enough. Or they're buying things, but they just can't get satisfaction. God is going to bring in frustration and vexation, as it were. They'll still have, but it will be as if they don't. God said through Micah, related to this whole scourge of judgments, He said judgment was coming, and Samaria and Israel in the north, and Judah and Jerusalem in the south would be destroyed physically, they'd be overrun, and they'd be taken captive. And of course, this happens quickly in Israel, because remember, if Micah's speaking in the, just say, the middle 700s, Israel and Samaria are taken captive in 722. So again, this might have been in Micah's lifetime, probably was. Jerusalem and Judah would take quite a bit longer, that's 605 and then 586 BC. 586 is when the temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, but it would also come. And by the way, in order, of course, in Micah's prophecies, Israel's destroyed first, which they could not have foreseen. But it's interesting that God puts the order in order in the book. Israel was the much bigger, much stronger nation when this was being prophesied. If you were going to bet on one country surviving a hundred years more than the other, it wouldn't have been on Judah. Because Judah was the smaller, much more, much less significant of the two nations. Israel goes down in 722. Judah goes down a generation later. So judgment's coming both the north and the south. Their prophets would gain no insights from God. All their plans would be frustrated, and the nations would mock and despise them. Those are the judgments, God says, he's bringing on his people. Now, this does not sound very nice. It doesn't sound like a nice thing to do to people you're in covenant with. The question immediately, of course, is why is God going to do this? He's going to destroy the capitals, destroy the nation, exile the people, frustrate them, What is the deal? What has moved God's hand to this judgment? You can go back into chapter 1, working through a second time here. At verse 5, God says, All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Let me stop here for a minute. This can be a little confusing. You know, a high place was a pagan place of worship. So when this says, what is Jacob's transgression? He says it's Samaria. It kind of means the sins of Israel in the north. Basically, they trace their origin to the capital. And the sins, or if Judah becomes a high place, a place of idolatry, they trace their idolatry to Jerusalem. Micah, God is saying through Micah, the sins of the nations are coming from their capitals, their leaders, their economic leaders, their political leaders, and their spiritual leaders are disseminating the poison that's worked its way through the nations. Samaria, the capital, should have been the source of blessing to the Israel in the north. Nope, it's the source of idolatry and cursing. Jerusalem, where the temple was, God calls it a high place and a place of idol worship. 
So the sins of the nation, the cause of the judgments God's going to bring, basically they start through the leadership in both countries. The places that were supposed to provide godly leadership and example are actually the places from which the cause of the judgments are coming. So Samaria, and and think about this historically, Israel was no sooner founded by Jeroboam. You remember after Solomon dies, Rehoboam can't can't contain the ten northern tribes. And King Rehoboam, first king of, of Israel in the north, because he's afraid, rather than trust God, he's afraid that his inhabitants will go down to Jerusalem to worship. And so what does he do? In Samaria and Bethel, he sets up pagan idols with golden calves for his people in Israel to worship. And then if you think of Jerusalem in the south, of these three kings that Micah lives through, Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, it was Ahaz who went to Damascus and saw a pagan altar. And he sent plans of the altar back to Judah so that when he came back, they took the pagan altar and they put it in the place of Solomon's altar And they took Solomon's altar and put it off on the side of the Temple Mount. So when God calls Jerusalem a high place, for Micah, this was literally true. Because the altar by which God said, you're to come to me, the altar Solomon had built and put up where the animals would be sacrificed, King Ahaz said, it's not what I'm after. He took it, set it to the side, and put a pagan altar, fashioned after a pagan altar in Damascus. That became the center of worship. In Jerusalem. So the point here is God saying that your capitals and your leaders, the place and the people from which you should be gaining positive examples and leadership, they're actually the source of the corruption. God calls Jerusalem a high place, and the sin or the transgression of Israel in the north is their capital, it's their leaders. This was true of the prophets also, and we won't look at most of these passages, but if you read Micah, you'll see in at least two places where basically the prophets are just guns for hire. You know, again, the people that are supposed to speak for God, depending on how much you gave them, that determined what they told you. They were, it was just they were open to bribes. They were self-serving. So the sins of the nation were actually coming from the leaders and the capitals. At Micah 2, verse 1, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. The picture is this. These guys with the political and economic ability to do so, the last thing they, go, the last thing they do at night as they go to bed, they're scheming and plotting and dreaming through the night about whose land they're going to steal in the morning. And then the first action, the first activity of the day when they get up is to put those plots and those dreams into action to steal what didn't belong to them. Now, it's not as if they're taking an army and going killing someone. They're doing this legally. Loopholes, whatever you, however you want to think about it. But those with the ability to do so go to sleep thinking about stealing and get up in the morning and carry out those plans. They're stealing what didn't belong to them. Micah 2, verse 8, he continues on this theme and he says, My people have risen up like an enemy towards each other. 
you strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. The person who has something that can be taken, he's without care, he walks by, and you steal from him. Like men returning from battle. The battle's over, I think I'm okay. No, I'm not. I'm in my own home, my own town, and I'm, I'm being pilfered, I'm being stolen from in a place I thought I was safe. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. God says that Jews were treating fellow Jews like the enemy. In the place in which they thought they'd be safe and secure, they weren't. Jews treating Jews like the enemy, worse than the enemy. What God gave to one was stolen by another. Micah 3, verse 1 I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? And you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Could this be any more graphic? God says that what you're doing is no better and it's no more than cannibalism. God describes it graphically as if literally they were taking their neighbor, chopping them up, and throwing them in the pot to eat, to consume. Because figuratively, that's what they were doing. They were consuming their neighbors. Anything their neighbor had that they thought they wanted, they took. They were consuming their neighbors. God called it cannibalism. Micah 3, verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Again, the sin coming from the leaders. Who despise justice, distort what is right. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. All the leaders, the shepherds of Israel who should have been leading them in the right way, they're just for hire. And again, there's, there's passages in here that, that give this a little bit more color, but in fact, one passage says, you know, if a guy, if a drunk prophet came speaking to you, he'd be your kind of prophet. You're just given up to pleasure, and that's all you want. It's all you're after. And your leaders, just depending on what, if the price is right, they'll give you what you want to hear. They'll give you what you're after as long as the price is right. Micah 6.16 He says, you have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house and you have followed their traditions. And if you remember the stories about Ahab and Jezebel, some of the most colorful in the Bible, kind of the low point in Israel's history. And if you remember two things true of Israel in their day, Israel was rampant with the worship of idols. Jezebel, remember the daughter of a Phoenician king, brought in all her idol worship with her and her husband Ahab embraced that. So Israel was full of idolatry in their day. But also, do you remember the other thing, one of the key stories about King Ahab? He wanted his neighbor's vineyard, a vineyard that didn't belong to him and that he couldn't buy. So his wife had Naboth murdered so they could take that vineyard. Exactly the same thing that was going on in Micah's day. So God says to Israel in Micah's day, it's just as if King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were back. Foreign idols, that's what the nation is serving, and covetousness or greed. 
Then Micah 7, starting at verse 2, The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each counts his brother, hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. And he goes on. Micah 7, 5, don't trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. A son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. You know, you'd think that you could at least trust your mother or father, your wife or husband or your kids. But in Micah's day, greed is so rampant and this form of cannibalism by covetousness is so thorough that Micah says, don't trust the woman you lie with. Don't trust your son or daughter. You can't trust anyone because greed is the rule of the day. And a family member would sell a family member if it gained them some benefit. So, Samaria and Jerusalem become rubble heaps. Children exiled. Israel and Judah, the, the, the mock and the, the butt of jokes of the nations. Why? Because the nation's leaders lead them astray. Greed was the motive of the day. Violence and theft were the rules of the day. And Jews treated each other as commodities like their next meal, worse than a foreigner would have treated them. That's why God's judgment is coming. As I'm thinking about this list, and I'm thinking, gosh, what would it be like to live in Micah's day where that's the rule of the road, where, where that's what life is like? But I started thinking about our circumstances today, and let's just bring this a little closer to home. You know, politicians today, whatever, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, or anything else, Politicians today generally ask themselves how they can spend your money. And why is that? It's so that they can get a group, some special interest group, that's beholden to them. So politicians steal from one group, legally, to give to another because it empowers them. Because they'll have a group that will re-elect them. That's no different ethically, morally, from what was going on in Micah's day. Or think about this. The corporate scandals, put this in perspective. This is close to home with Westar here. But you take guys who are making tens, and, and literally tens and hundreds of millions of dollars a year as the CEOs of corporations, and they're robbing average workers of their savings and their retirements. Why? So that they can keep the stock price up. So that they can get a better pension themselves, their golden parachute, whatever. These are people worth literally hundreds of millions of dollars swindling people out of hundreds and thousands of dollars to get just a little bit more. That's the same thing that was going on in Micah's day. And think about this too. You can go to many, 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 many churches in the United States and hear the, pro- the, the false prophets just like in Micah's day. You can go to many churches today that will tell you that God's word is not God's word and that the Bible doesn't mean what it says and that God has no goal or purpose or rule 
for what families look like and what relationships should look like. This is the same thing. It's God's word for hire, if you will. And this is in the news almost monthly with one group or another. And is the violence in our street, just this week they arrested two people in Phoenix because of a string of serial murders that have been going on there for months or years, is the violence done on our streets, gang-related, drug-related, just carnality-related, is any different than the cannibalism that was going on in Micah's day? I'm not sure that it was. The scale might be a little different, but I think qualitatively it's no different. So maybe we do know something about what it's like to live in the days of Micah. So this is really depressing, Tanya. I'm, I'm bummed. I know judgment's coming, and I know why. I know what it looks like, but it, fortunately, obviously, it doesn't end there. God's story doesn't end there for Israel or for us. All's not lost. There is light ahead because God says that in the midst of judgment and in the midst of this evil and wickedness, God says that he's going to save what he calls a remnant. Go back to Micah 2, verse 12. God says there, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. God says for a remnant, not for everyone, judgment was still going to come. Not for everyone, but God would have this remnant, this leftover, if you will. And it says he'd bring them together in this corral. He'd bring all of them together. And then it would be as if they would break out of their pen and the Lord would be at their head. God would be their shepherd who would regather them and then lead them out. This sounds just like John 10 to me. We didn't look at it too long ago. In which Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And I'll lay down my life for the flock and I'll gather them together and then I'll lead them out to pasture. That's exactly the picture here. God says to Israel, even in the midst of judgment, there's going to be a remnant and I'm going to gather them all together and then I will be their shepherd and I will lead them out. Micah 4 verse 1, this is the passage that's quite similar to Isaiah chapter 2. God says, if you say, when will this happen? God says, well, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. God would be giving his word again. Revelation would be coming again from Jerusalem, from Zion. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The night of darkness would be over. God would be speaking again. He will judge between many peoples. He will settle disputes for strong nations and wide. In other words, God will rule and justice won't be for hire. Bribes won't get you anywhere. A God of justice will be ruling. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. That is in contrast to judgment and exile and destruction. God says the day is coming when you'll be regathered and you'll be safe in your own land. 
All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, that will be the remnant, and those I have brought to grief, I will make the lame a remnant. Those driven away will become a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, a watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Micah 7, don't gloat over me, my enemy. God says in judgment, Israel, you'll be gloated over by your enemies. You'll be the butt of jokes. But for the future, don't gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. And this is how Micah ends. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You don't stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. You will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. God says through Micah that after judgment comes glory and after distress and loss comes deliverance and bounty. In the end, God says, he'll save what he calls a remnant. They'll be restored to the nation. Now you know, if you know even a little bit of the Bible or history, Israel was destroyed. Those words of God through Micah to Israel, they were fulfilled. And God's words to Jerusalem and Judah, they were fulfilled too. And even though the Babylonian captivity was restored, we have never seen these promises of the remnant salvation and of the nation streaming to Israel. This has never happened. But if God's promise of judgment was fulfilled then we can conclude that the promise of the salvation of the remnant and future glory will be too. And we've talked about this because it comes up time and time again in the prophets, but God has promised a future to the nation of Israel. And it has not occurred. As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, it sure looks like God is arranging the pieces of the puzzle of the earth and the nations because he's going to deal with the nation, the ethnic group of Israel in the land again. And Israel, this remnant, will be restored. And King Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. And the nations of the earth will stream to Jerusalem again. And and Israel and Judah will be the blessing to the earth that God always meant them to be. This has not happened, but will. Concerning this remnant, if you remember the story of Elijah, God's prophet went up in the days of Ahab and Jezebel and he confronted the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and he called fire down from heaven and God, the God of heaven of Israel, spoke. And then after this glorious, glorious time on Carmel, Jezebel threatens to kill Elijah. And Elijah's worn out. And so he runs away and he runs south as far as he can. And when he gets as far away from Jezebel as he can, he makes a complaint to God. And this is what he says. God, 
I'm your only man left. Everybody else worships Baal. I'm your only man left. You know, basically, you've got to save me and reward me because I'm, I'm the only one left. You're looking for a remnant God. I'm it. And God says to him, well, no, that's not quite true. Elijah, your, your view's a little skewed. And I've actually got 7,000 other people. I've got a remnant in Israel today, and you don't see them, and you don't know who they are, but they're there. I've got a remnant, 7,000. Now, whether that's figurative or literal, God's saying seven and the number of completion, thousand, there's a whole bunch of them. God says, no, I've got a remnant, Elijah. You're not the only one. You know, sometimes you might be tempted to look around. You might look around this church and say, Lord, I'm the only godly one here. Why can't everybody else be as good and holy as I am? Or you might look around your neighborhood. Or you might look around the world and you might just hang your head like Elijah and say, Lord, the holy ones are gone. There's just nobody else left. And God says, no, I always have a remnant. God says, I always set aside those that I make sure are true to my name and my cause. And Paul picks up that theme in Romans 11. He says, God always has a remnant. And God will in the future save this remnant of the nation of Israel. Salvation is yet to come in the future. Micah is a reminder that God will, and in fact, he must judge wickedness, but that in the end, it's his mercy and his compassion and his promises that will prevail. Judgment will come because God's just and he must judge. So judgment will come, but mercy and compassion and restoration will follow. The story doesn't end on judgment. It ends with restoration. That's a great reminder from Micah. Let me close Micah with two passages and two themes and two thoughts. These are the big agates you can take home with you. If you don't know any passage out of the book of Micah, if I read you the whole book of Micah and nothing sounded familiar, Micah 5.2 probably would. If you have never heard any other verse or can't recall a verse out of Micah, I'll bet you can Micah 5.2 because Micah 5.2 is in every Christmas story. And you'll hear it quoted in the New Testament. Why? Because when wise men came from the east looking for him who was born king of the Jews and went to King Herod and said, Where is he? And Herod asked the Jewish wise men, what did they say? They quoted Micah 5, verse 2. Where will Israel's Messiah come from? Where will the Savior of the world come from? You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, from eternity past. Israel's Messiah would come from Bethlehem, from the house of bread, from the city of David, that's where Israel's Messiah would come from. If you don't know any other passage out of Micah, Micah 5.2, the Savior, King Jesus, comes from Bethlehem. And you know, this is interesting. During Jesus' life, do you remember when there's speculation about why he can't be the Messiah? They say he comes from Galilee. But they didn't ask him, where were you born? If they would have asked They would have known he comes from the right city. They just assumed because he grew up in Galilee, that's where he was born, but of course he wasn't. God said that the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world would come from Bethlehem through Micah. And then you might know a song out of Micah. This is an old song. It's been around a long time. God provides our salvation, and he does it through Jesus who comes from Bethlehem. 
So he provides our salvation. He can keep the promises. He can save the remnant. He can give us a glorious future because Micah 5, 2 happened. The Messiah came. So then what's left for us? And in Micah 6, Micah asks these questions. Starting at verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord? In other words, Lord, if you provide the deliverance, the salvation, and my future glory, what's your expectation on me? What shall I come before the Lord with and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Shall I come up to the temple to God with these animal sacrifices? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil, the oil that was poured on the animal sacrifices? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? By the way, King Ahab's, Hezekiah's father did exactly that. He caused his children, the scripture said, to pass through the fire, sacrifice them to Molech. So Micah says, God, is that what you want? Should I offer you the children that I have had? Should I burn them up as an offering to you? Micah 6, 8, no. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? It's simple. Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. This is great because this makes it simple. This puts it down at the shelf you and I can reach. We say to God, boy, the Savior came. Bethlehem delivered the Messiah. Jesus has paid for our sins on the cross. And so, Lord, what is it? We can say with Micah, what is it you require of us, Lord? What's the formula? What do we bring? What do we offer? And God says, It's not salvation. It's not your own deliverance. I've taken care of all of that. This is all I say. Do just. That is, think of Micah's day. Everybody's abusing everyone else. I'm in it for what I can get. If I'm a leader, I'm abusing those under my charge. If I'm a neighbor, I'm stealing what belongs to my neighbor. God says, do right. Do right by your neighbors. Do justice. Do what's right. Love mercy. Forgive others when they do sin against you, and they will. Love mercy, and remember, God says he'll have compassion. He'll forgive sins, and he calls us to do the same thing. Have mercy, forgive others, and walk humbly with God. You and I both know, if you take a close look at your life, you know that that God has lots to forgive you for. And you and I sin not not once or twice, but in many ways, And, and we're the cannibals, and every kind of impure thought and impious deed, the potential for all that is in each of us. Our unholy nature that we get from unholy parents until we're born again and given God's own nature, we're all capable of despicable acts. So God says, walk humbly. Walk humbly with your God. Remember, we have much to be forgiven and we're to turn around, extend that forgiveness to others and do right by those around us. God makes it very simple. So as you're walking through the book of Micah, there's judgment, and there's all kinds of reasons for judgment, but there's hope in the end. And Micah leaves us with this this simple thought. What does God want for me? What does God want for my life? If I don't figure out any more than this, if I get this right, I'm doing well, do right by others, practice love, mercy towards others, and walk humbly with God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by how simple and how easy you make it for us, and and on the other hand, how complex uh, I find it. 
Lord, I pray for each of us that you help us to walk in the truth that not only are our sins forgiven, but that unholy nature of ours, ours through birth, with all its sinful tendencies, Lord, has already also been taken care of in our union with Christ on the cross. And that you call us today to walk as those who have been born again, whose home is in heaven. And Lord, you make it simple to keep our eyes fixed on you, to do right by those around us, to extend mercy and compassion to others, and to walk humbly with you. Lord, thanks for providing a deliverer through Bethlehem, for keeping your promises, Lord, both in judgment and deliverance. Lord, thanks for that future happy day when you restore your covenant people, Israel, when Jerusalem is a source of blessing in the earth. And Lord, we, your church, will be with you there. And then we thank you for that. Lord, thanks that all our blessings, all our hopes lie in you. In Jesus' name, amen.